Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Shanker Chronicles podcast. This six-episode podcast series is an opportunity for me to take a deep dive into the historical, political, scientific, and philosophical background of some of the most important issues of our day. So thank you for joining me, and together we will all work towards a more regulated society, a more self-regulated society, and a more just society. Today, I want to talk about a particularly difficult issue, and that is the anti-vax movement. As always when doing self-reg, I try to avoid uh, the word should, um, any kind of judgmental tone. I really want to understand um, uh, the dynamics of um, the relatively fierce opposition that we're seeing today to vaccination. And the hope here, of course, is that the better we understand this, um, the more effectively we can deal with a challenge that um, has really occurred over and over over the last three centuries. So um, what this is, is yet again, a case where there is a clash between uh, the wishes of the majority and the wishes of a minority. Um, and it is misleading to cast this as um, you know, simply a conflict between the government and a vocal minority. It's really uh, a clash between the will of the, uh, of, you know, the almost two-thirds of the population versus one-third. And um, in this case, we have, uh, from public health, we have some epidemiological findings which are relatively clear. So what have we found? Uh, well, we have certainly found that uh, vac the vaccine does not make you invulnerable to COVID. You can still catch the disease, although um, uh, it is clear that um, if vaccinated, uh, your symptoms are much less severe. It's also clear, however, that you will need a booster. And in fact, I'm going for my own booster with my wife next Thursday. Um, it's very difficult at this point to predict, you know, will, will it be, you know, the third time is a charm? Will we need more boosters? Israel is currently looking at its fourth uh, vaccine rollout. Um, this is, you know, we have reasonable uh, grounds to hope that Omicron will be the last serious outbreak, but we don't know for sure. And so this is, you know, a difficult, uh, a difficult issue for absolutely everyone. Uh, and I don't just mean uh, you and me, uh, but the scientists and the public health officials and the government leaders who are uh, trying to do their very best to protect us all. We can draw some fairly broad generalizations here, and that is vaccinated groups are doing better than unvaccinated. Um, and they're doing better in terms of infection rate, uh, in terms of the severity of the illness if contracted, and of course, in terms of death rate. I'll come back to that later. The big point is that the majority are somewhat exasperated with the minority because um, there is reason to believe now that it is uh, that the unvaccinated uh, percentage of society are um, making things more difficult for all of us. There is a serious risk now of our health system being overloaded once again, uh, crashing. Um, and, you know, our best advice at the moment appears to be vaccination, uh, um, washing our hands, wearing masks, keeping distance, social distancing. Uh, so I don't need to, I, I don't intend to um, discuss that. I'm, I'm really interested in something else. This is a case where the anti-vaxxers aren't just insisting 
on their rights, uh, they're shouting about their rights. In fact, they may be doing worse than that. Um, we are seeing uh, uh, we are seeing both verbal and physical violence. Uh, we are seeing all kinds of death threats to health professionals, um, physicians. We are seeing some remarkable things playing out in the U.S. where anti-vaxxers are swarming health clinics. Um, and so um, when, you know, whenever we're doing self-reg and we see a phenomenon like that, um, we start asking why. Uh, why has this become so emotionally charged? Um, why are we seeing such anger and resistance? And again, uh, let me just uh, emphasize that I'm trying to do this non-judgmentally. I'm genuinely curious about this. So I wanted to um, I wanted to get more information about about um, the whole issue, and I read a very interesting book by John Berman, and it's called Anti-Vaxxers, How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement, uh, and this book just came out um, in 2020 from MIT. And uh, I was very interested, and in, in fact, um, a little bit surprised um, by what I learned from this book. Uh, so you can tell from the title what uh, what Berman's goal is, and I just took one quotation, it sums it up. Um, he said, quote, we should learn how we can individually respond to the doubts or questions of our friends, neighbors, and family members in a way that is compassionate, well-informed, and correct. And so that strike, strikes me, you know, as... Uh, you know, it's a very self-regish type sentiment, you know, that we want to um, look with soft eyes. But I hesitated a little bit when I was reading that. Um, uh, what I hesitated over, and this is what will be the point of today's talk, is this assumption that somehow what we have to do is um, direct ourselves to the doubts and questions of the anti-vaxxer. Um, so this is seen as very much as a, as a blue-brained issue where we have to explain, instruct. Uh, and, you know, his point is, you know, we're going to do all this gently, um, but that it's really a case of informed, uh, scientifically informed, let's say, knowledge, or at least uh, theory, against um, lack, of, lack of knowledge, um, or worse. Um, and I wonder, as I think about this, if that's quite right. Um, and one of the reasons why I started to wonder this is because uh, I read uh, another piece that I think is an important. I think is an important kind of self-reg article, uh, and this was put out by the College of the Physicians of Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, I, I will give uh, Adam uh, my notes for today's talk with the link so you can read this. The piece starts off with the incredible opposition that occurred to Edward Jenner's discovery of the smallpox vaccine back in 1796. Uh, and so what... Uh, now, uh, let me just explain that there had been several people that had been uh, toying with what Jenner eventually came up with. He was, not, he was not actually the first to do this, but he was the first to do it systematically and, um, and record, you know, re record his results for others to see. Now, what he did was uh, in that year, he um, infected, he scratched a young boy with um, the lymph taken from an animal, from a cow, that had cowpox. And uh, it blistered, uh, the, the, the site on the arm blistered, um, but uh, after about a week, the um, wound went away, the blister receded. And then six weeks after this, uh, Jenner now uh, infected the same boy with 
smallpox lymph. Um, okay, so uh, bear in mind that there were no no such thing as you know ethical ethical guidelines back uh, back at the end of the 18th century. And this young boy turned out to be immune to smallpox, uh, and that was the reason why Jenner called his uh, his treatment vaccination after the Latin. Uh, word vaca, uh, meaning cow. So um, uh, this was, you know, for an age that was truly suffering from smallpox, this was miraculous. Uh, and I say that because um, uh, smallpox at this time was a real killer. 10% um, of the whole population was dying from smallpox. And in fact, 20% of the population in urban areas were dying from smallpox. So it was a killer. And if you survived it, it left you, you know, seriously disfigured for life um, with other uh, uh, collateral harm done to, the, done to the body and the brain. So you would think that this discovery that um, you could somehow inoculate yourself from what was the greatest killer of the time would have been a cause of massive celebration uh, that the uh, public would have been would have greeted this with with joy. But in fact, what actually happened was there was a huge anti-vax movement, um, and uh, the anti-vaxxers of the early nineteenth century were opposed to Jenner's, uh, Jenner's uh, vaccination on several different grounds. Um, so there was strong religious um, opposition. The feeling was that, uh, you know, it was going against God's will to inject something from an animal into the human body. And in fact, there was a widespread conspiracy theory at that time that children that had been infected with this uh, with this cowpox uh, lymph were developing uh, cow um, features that they were developing horns and udders, uh, and so there were pamphlets coming out. You know, do not do this if you unless you want to see your child turned into a cow. Um, uh, there was opposition on the grounds that. Um, it wasn't the vaccine that was uh, uh, making them, making the you know, children immune to smallpox. Uh, they were going to be anyways. It was just a coincidence or time. And there were other ways that you could prevent uh, smallpox, natural ways, where natural meant, uh, you know, as it meant, as it means today, some sort of, you know, uh, injecting yourself, uh, you know, consuming, I should say, uh, bleach. And they were doing this already. Uh, or um, uh, exposing your child to what were called pox parties. Uh, so you take your child uh, in the hope that by being exposed, they would develop natural immunity. There was all kinds of, uh, there are all kinds of grounds why they were opposed. But the big one, the really big thing that they were objecting to was that the government should somehow have any say, any control over what they did with their own body. Uh, this was seen as a threat to the autonomy of the individual. Um, and so um, uh, what we saw, what they saw happen at the beginning of the 19th century were unbelievably large anti-vax movements um, that became quite aggressive as the government, uh, as the British government, introduced mandatory vac vaccination for infants under three. Um, uh, that was introduced in 53, 1853. And then a couple of years later, uh, in 67, they made it mandatory to have vaccination up to the age of 14 or 16. Um, 14. And so what happened was we started to see riots. Uh, and the most famous of these were the riots that were in Leicester. 
Uh, and so what happened was um, anti-vaccination leagues sprung up, anti-vaccination journals uh, appeared, um, and this was all stirring up what became uh, a violent anti-vax uh, movement. And um, the most famous, uh, the most famous uh, riot was in Leicester around 1880. Um, and I, I haven't got the date here, but it's around 1880. Um, and uh, I'll just read you um, this description that I have of uh, the riot. Quote, an escort was formed, preceded by a banner to escort a young mother and two men who had resolved to give themselves up to the police and undergo imprisonment in preference to having their children vaccinated. There was a huge crowd. Hearty cheers were given for them, and their, which was renewed with increased vigor as they entered the doors of the police cells. And then there was a march, uh, that was in 85, um, and demonstrations. And then they uh, burned these rioters, ben burned an effigy, uh, an effigy of Edward Jenner. So um, Jenner was clearly the Fauci of his time. Uh, and the movement, the anti-vax movement, started to grow and it spread, it spread to the U.S. And then there was a very famous case in 1902 where, what was his name, uh, Henning Jack Jacobson refused to, um, he refused to be vaccinated on the grounds that the government did not have the power to uh, to um, interfere with his liberty to care for his own body in whatever way he went. Uh, so he went to court over it, and he lost. And the, he then appealed, and the case was taken to the Supreme Court. And in 1902, the Supreme Court ruled that the government did have the right to enforce um, mandatory vaccination um, and someone who refused would therefore suffer certain consequences such as we see today. Now all of this is it's important to put all of this in perspective because um, smallpox the the eradication of smallpox has to be seen as public health's greatest victory of all its victories. In 1975-76, uh, somewhere around in there, uh, that was the last naturally occurring case of smallpox anywhere in the world. And in 1980, the World Health Organization declared that smallpox had been eradicated. So this is an extraordinary achievement. And the lesson here is clear, and that was what uh, destroyed smallpox was not that the was not that it just naturally wore out. It was it was mandatory vac vaccination, and that's clear for us. But we have seen one after another anti-vaccine movement, and I've lived through the, several of these myself. Uh, I lived through the anti-vax movement. I remember this vividly when I was a child. The anti-vax movement to polio, uh, the polio vaccine, um, a huge anti-vax movement to DTP, to percussus, uh, and then now, of course, um, probably the biggest of them all, um, the anti-vax movement to MMR. Um, now, I want to just spend a couple of minutes talking about uh, the anti-vax movement to... MMR. But I want to do this, you know, I mentioned at the top, I, you know, I'm very interested in how historical events can help us understand certain things. And in the debate over percussus, um, there a clear pattern was documented. So with the growth of anti-vax movements, what happened was the rates of immunization dropped significantly. And this happened all over the world. And so I, I, can't, I have just a couple of cases here, a couple of examples. 
Um, in Sweden, vaccination dropped from 90% of the public in 1974 to 12% in 1979. And this is because of the anti-vax movement. However, what then followed was a huge outbreak of percussus between 1983 and 1985. And that pattern has been repeated over and over. We saw exactly the same thing happen in Ireland. Um, in Ireland, their vaccination rates dropped to 30% in 1976, and then they had an explosion of percussus again in the mid 80s. Uh, and there are many, many examples of this. So every time, every time um, there has been this, this big anti-vax movement, um, within a couple of years, there has been a huge consequence. And we are already seeing this play out with MMR. The MMR anti-vax movement was really sparked off by Andrew Wakefield's article in 1998 in The Lancet, claiming that there was a connection between that the MMR uh, vaccine was causing uh, digestive and problems and autism in certain children. And um, this, I can remember this vividly. Uh, I was working, uh, I was, uh, you know, very, very shortly after this, I it was running an autism clinic uh, and we were besieged by parents who uh, wanted to follow Wakefield's instruction, which was to bake break the MMR uh, vaccine into three separate vaccines and um, make sure that uh, the vaccine was not using Tamarisol uh, as a binding agent. Um, but then we had this huge furor over Wakefield's paper. Uh, and eventually, um, for all sorts of reasons, not just one, Wakefield's paper wasn't just discredited, it was retracted by the journal. Uh, Wakefield was stripped of his medical license for fraud. The uh, argument was that uh, uh, a group of parents had hired a law firm to sue the government, uh, claiming that their child had developed autism as a result of the vaccine. And those lawyers uh, paid for Wakefield's research, and um, so uh, and Wakefield did not declare this, so there was a conflict of interest. Uh, but then it turned out that as they started to dig deep, um, it simply wasn't true that children had shown signs of autism prior to, or whatever the reasons that they had shown signs of autism prior to the vaccine, or uh, the statistics were not at all. Uh, what Wakefield had claimed. Um, and, and if you're interested in all this, you can read the, a couple of chapters in Berman's book that are very good uh, on the whole history of this event. But uh, Wakefield himself um, did not you know, go gently into the night. Uh, instead, he moved to the U.S. Uh, and he set up a center in Texas and has been very vocal about how he was, there was this big conspiracy uh, to punish him to keep his results, uh, um, to, to, to punish his results, to hide the research, and uh, that uh, anti-MR anti movement, anti-vaccination movement, with aut uh, uh, the idea that the vaccine causes autism, has persisted despite reams and reams of science, uh, discrediting it from top to bottom. Um, but to some extent, um, this fight uh, has, um, you know, it was one of these fights where it was being waged between uh, celebrities uh, on the one side and um, scientists on the other, um, which is very curious. Uh, and unfortunately, I think its, it's influence can be seen in the anti-vax movement over the COVID vaccines. Let's suppose then that, um, uh, you know, we are seeing, well, it's not a case of suppose, we are, we're seeing uh, the same kinds of consequences um, to the fight over MMR 
that we saw with DPT, uh, because there has been, uh, in recent years, a huge um, outburst of measles in the U.S. And in fact, in the just recently, I don't have my date here, um, but the WHO has now been forced to label measles, once again, a global health risk. Um, and all this has occurred uh, shortly after the anti-vaccination movement where parents stopped vaccinating their children for measles. Um, and, uh, well, you know the long-term risks associated for a child's health uh, if should they get measles. I read a, a really interesting article about all this in the New York Times. It's by, it was December 22nd, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of days ago, um, by Yin and Worship. Um, and so I've given in the notes, um, uh, in the notes that uh, uh, Adam will circulate, I'll give you the link for this article if you'd like to read it. So these are two scientists who have specialized in the, you know, in uh, changing attitudes um, you know, with people that are um, strongly opposed to vaccination. Um, so they've explored all kinds of different techniques, and they came to the conclusion that no amount of information, no matter how you deliver it, no matter how you explain it, changes attitudes. Uh, it is powerless to change attitudes. And in fact, that is the pattern that we've seen uh, since the beginning of the 19th century, that um, public health officials um, have been consistently confronted with a minority who uh, will not um, change their view. They are unshakably certain that um, they should not take the vaccine, that the vaccine is more harmful than the disease. And uh, uh, Yen and Warsham actually conclude that there's only two things that have been seen to work um, in changing behavior. One is incentives. Um, so, you know, the kinds of things we've seen, you know, where you give someone a hundred bucks for getting the vaccine. Um, there was one brothel that was giving free services to the brothel if you got the vaccine. Uh, but even more powerful, the strong, the most effective uh, deterrent of all is disincentives, uh, punishment. Um, and those punishments can be um, various kinds. Um, and that's what we see happening in Austria today. Uh, the strongest form of disincentives um, that we've yet seen being imposed by the government uh, to curtail what, has, what is getting out of control. Uh, so, in other words, the only thing that works is brute force, punishment and reward. Um, and uh, if this is a blue brain issue, then, um, you know, we just have to accept that some people will not be swayed by rational argument. But, you know, um, when I read this, I thought, well, what if it's not a blue brain? And um, it reminds me, if you're interested, um, in the fight that uh, Spinoza had with his uh, Jewish congregation in Amsterdam. Um, and Spinoza tried, um, through uh, rational explanation, to... Uh, uh, explain why uh, the belief in revelation was primitive. Um, that and this wasn't a case of science versus revelation. It's not a case of one sort of faith versus another. So the faith of the scientist versus the faith of, um, you know, uh, theodicy. This was a case of facts versus um, unshakable convictions. And the price that Spinoza paid was excommunication, what's called a harem. So uh, by when the minority violates the wishes of the majority, the belief system of the majority, 
the majority responds by various sorts of stripping the individual of their rights or worse, or excommunicating them in one way or another. Um, so the last thing that I read on this topic um, was because I still felt, you know, well, we're not really getting anywhere here. Um, I mean, it seems to be, uh, you know, we seem to be looking at, um, you know, the conclusion that, you know, there's just nothing that you can do through the kind of compassionate, rational debate that Berman is proposing. Um, so we have to just resort to whatever means we can. This last piece that I read is by uh, Diltem and McKee, and it's um, the, the, uh, the name of the article is worth mentioning. And again, I, I'll give you the reference for this. It's denialism. What is it and how should scientists respond? And that came out in the U Journal of European Health about 2009. Yeah, 2009. So what these two scientists uh, found, they looked at all the kinds of cases that I've been looking at today. And they found that anti-vax movements or anti-scientism movements have five core features in common. So one, um, they rely on conspiracy theories. Two, they use fake experts. Um, and, you know, so the fake expert uh, will have some sort of credential to uh, undermine the credibility of, of the public health experts. Uh, three, they will cherry pick the data. Um, so uh, ignore what's inconvenient for their, for their anti-vax theory. Uh, and try to pick up something that makes a stronger case than it really does. Uh, four, um, they'll demand that um, science delivers what really is impossible, uh, irrefutable proof that the vaccine, uh, that we need the vaccine. Uh, and then five, uh, the logic itself has, um, you know, whether it's the statistics or, um, or the actual um, argument, are logically flawed. But when I read that, I thought, you know, we have to be very careful here. Um, I think the last thing we want to do is doubt the sincerity of the anti-vaxxer. Um, I don't believe that this is a confidence trick. I mean, sure, there have been cases where, you know, fraudsters have, um, for their own benefit, whether it's financial or political power, you know, they they will manipulate um, the feelings of others. But I don't feel that's what's going on here. I think this is sincere. I do not think that anti-vaxxers believe that they are, um, you know, investing in a conspiracy theory. I think what they truly believe is that they are discovering sources of information which the government doesn't want you to see. Um, I saw this just yesterday where uh, someone accused Trump, who has been promoting the vaccine in the last couple of days, accused him of not understanding the current generation, um, which knows how to use the Internet to access information that would otherwise be suppressed. That's a genuine belief. Um, and it is sincere, or at least I believe it's sincere. Um, but what if the the key here in this in this um, paper that this paper by Dilton and, and McKee, um, what if the key here is in the very first word? The very first word is denialism. What if we really are dealing with denial? Not denial in the sense of I have different theory, I have different evidence, but denial in the in the psychological sense that we talk about denial as an ego defense. What if what we've seen in um, you know, these anti-vax movements over the last two centuries are ego defenses? Now, uh, I, I, I won't go into too much detail because we do this elsewhere in self-reg, but for self-reg, we reframe ego defense um, as these are unconscious ways of dealing with excessive stress. Um, so we have certain behaviors that uh, help us 
mitigate, reduce the stress so that it doesn't overload us. So an ego defense is or can be a maladaptive way of self-regulating. Okay, yeah. and so uh, Adam can give you the, uh, uh, will point you to, um, it was an SRG webinar I gave where we talked about ego defenses as, as ways of, maladaptive ways of self-regulating. The point is that the more a stress increases, the more that ego defense, ego defense becomes entrenched. And if we try to force someone to, if we try to override someone's ego defense, the result is that they become very angry. And we see this at any point in the lifespan. If someone has an ego defense and you dismiss it, you challenge it, you try to force them to behave in a way contrary to their ego defense, they will become verbally, if not physically violent. Um, and Pengsep has a very good explanation if you're interested. Yak Pengsep has a very good explanation, uh, which I mentioned in one of my other chronicles, uh, about how the rage system is, is uh, triggered, uh, which is a deep subcortical system by um, constraint, by restraint. Um, it is triggered also by anyone who tries to override our ego defenses. And that's the reason why only a brute force technique, um, you know, you force the individual to submit um, um, when their ego defense ego defenses are screaming no and remember and here's where um, uh, if you're interested look up ego defense um, there are many different ego defenses um, my favorite person on ego defenses as I've mentioned before is Nancy McWilliams um, so we are not simply talking about denial. You may be talking about rationalization. You may be talking about intellectualization. Uh, you may be talking about externalization. So, you know, your anger, perhaps with yourself, gets transferred into anger uh, at, at um, uh, you know, the government or the public health official or, Mr. or Dr. Fauci or it could be wishful thinking. There are many different, um, there are many different kinds of ego defense. And what's interesting is we can see these. If you look up ego defense, you can see these, um, you can see these uh, very much at the, you know, present in all of these arguments. Now, um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, one of my kids has very strong ego defenses. And if I get an argument with his ego defenses, it just goes on and on and becomes more and more heated. Uh, and eventually the only way to break this cycle is by me using um, parental authority, becoming authoritarian, because reason hasn't worked. Uh, but that's because you cannot argue with an ego defense. An ego defense is limbic. This pattern is occurring beneath the threshold of conscious awareness. It is not intentional. It is not a matter of choice. These are behaviors that you developed to deal with, to mitigate some overwhelming emotion. Some emotion that is causing you to be dysregulated. So the question then would become, if that were the case, if, I, if this is the case, if this is what's going on, in these anti-vaccine movements, what is that emotion that is so dysregulating? And I'd like to suggest today that that emotion might be shame. Uh, shame is incredibly stressful. Uh, shame, as Pankset also showed, drives the rage, uh, the rage uh, subcortical system. Now, Panksep has a very interesting uh, explanation of this. So if, if you'd like to go into the science, the neuroscience behind it, you can read Panksep and Bivens' uh, The Archaeology of Mind, a fascinating discussion of this point. And the point that they make is that groups use shame in order to uh, maintain group cohesion, conformity, 
just as parents use shame to get their to socialize their child, to get their child to conform to social uh, to social rules, social norms. Um, and so the reason why, so here I'm basically just paraphrasing Yak, but the reason why you shame the individual is to force them to conform. The fear that shame itself causes a very strong fear response. Um, so it might be that you're that the fear that you will be reduced in your social standing or that, you know, sink to the bottom of the social hierarchy of the group or that you will have certain rights removed or the ultimate uh, threat that you will be expelled from the group. And that's literally what happened with Spinoza. He was expelled from his group. Um, and then the um, and then the ego defenses kick in even stronger. Uh, and what we saw in uh, Spinoza is, in fact, what we see, what we're seeing today. What happens is you have to convert now. You have to somehow deal with your shame. Uh, and and uh, I believe, um, you know, Martha Nussbaum wrote a book about this. Um, I believe that uh, the government has, in fact, um, used shame as well as the threat of punishments. Um, uh, and her, Martha's argument is governments must never do this, um, that they are intended to pre preserve, protect the integrity of the individual. But here what's happening is we are trying to shame the uh, uh, anti-vaxxer into getting the vaccination uh, because you are threatening the welfare of society at large. Or you're threatening. Look at you look at all these cases of you know the father or the grandfather that died because you brought uh, the you brought COVID into the house, um, and the feeling of shame is so strong, so dysregulating that we suppress it, we repress it, and that's the point of using the ego defense language here. And so you try, there are various ways of dealing with um, this feeling of shame. One of them is that you convert your feelings of shame into feelings of righteousness. Uh, that I am a defender of liberty. I am a defender of the rights of the individual against a government that would trample all over us, be authoritarian. Uh, and of course, if you can, you join up with a, a minority group that feels the same because now what's happened is you get that feeling you haven't been uh, expelled from the majority group. You have chosen, this is how the ego defense works, you have chosen to be part of like-minded individuals. You are part of this group that gives you the feeling that you are not being expelled. You are not uh, excommunicated. Uh, you are choosing. I know that the uh, natural objection, I mean, I felt this myself, but the natural objection that we all have when we read this is, but uh, I don't see any evidence of shame. Um, and I'll just read you one last quote today. This is by Leon Seltzer, a very interesting article on shame. And he says, uh, so he's, uh, uh, this, uh, this is, the voice of, of a psychiatrist speaking. And he says, I regard most shameless behaviors as a cover-up, and that's what ego defenses are, for a deeper feeling of shame, which the individual is either too scared or too defended, ego defended, to confront. So we're burying this deep uh, inside our psyche so that we can continue to function, so that we aren't dysregulated. Um, and I've given you the link for that article, too. Uh, it's an article, a blog he wrote on Psychology Today. So let's just play with this for one sec. Let's suppose that we really are dealing with, that we are, in fact, dealing with ego defenses. And what that tells us is that there have to be fears involved which have triggered the ego defense. So what might those fears be? Well, um, if we go back to the original reaction to the smallpox vaccine, you know, we can see there are six fears that immediately jump out at you. So there's the fear of catching the disease, the fear of side effects, the fear of something foreign being injected into the body. There's simple needle, needle phobia, 
there is uh, a, a deep-seated fear of doctors. Uh, and then finally, the, the big one, the fear of the loss of autonomy. And the problem that we have is that um, if these are limbic, then we can't argue with them. Um, you, you can soothe a fear, but you cannot tell someone that that fear is groundless because this is not a blue brain. This is not a blue brain issue. It's a red brain issue. And if we force someone, if we override their, their ego defense and force them to behave in a certain way, they will become dysregulated. Even if they comply, they will be dysregulated. This will cause acute stress. But if we don't, then society becomes dysregulated. And that's where I started today. That's the classic clash that we are that we are once again confronted with. And we will continue to be confronted with this. Um, uh, and so we've got to figure out now, clearly what we've been doing for over two centuries doesn't work. Um, at some point, we have to, at some point, we have to reframe um, why people object are objecting, why people are resisting, how we respond to that how we deal with this, because there will be future such episodes. And that's where suffering comes in. Um, what I want to say is, um, if I take the five steps of suffering, what I want to do now is I want the individual to be able to reframe their own objections, to consider whether the various arguments that they have are actually or possibly an ego defense. So they have to, I can't tell someone that. You have to ask yourself this. Um, am I behaving this way? Am I arguing this way because of an ego defense? And if that is the case, then I have to figure out, well, what's triggered this ego defense? What are the stresses? And that's what I just did with the six fears. Uh, and so you're trying to be very honest with yourself. Uh, and now what I have to do is I have to reduce the stresses. And, um, you know, in my own opinion, uh, I, live, uh, I live in eastern Ontario and the medical system here has been extraordinary. Public health has been extraordinary at reducing the stress of getting the vaccination that uh, the people that are delivering this are unbelievably kind and gentle and understand. Um, uh, the, the big one here is that you have to develop embodied self-awareness. That's step four. Um, and maybe the way you'll do this is by focusing on the physical sensations you have when you think about um, getting the vaccine. Do you feel tingling in your arms? Do you feel your heart rate going up? Do you feel you know, slightly nauseous, slightly dizzy? Uh, all of these as signs that uh, your limbic alarm has been triggered. Um, so maybe that's how we start. Maybe what we start is by, you know, just focusing on the physical side. Do I feel uh, the effects of adrenaline? And then finally, we need to restore. And we need to restore our connections now. And we have to restore our connections to our society. Um, we have to restore our connections to family members that are angry with us, exasperated with us. Um, we have to restore our connection to our own mind, to what's going on inside of us. Now, um, this is not easy. If we are, in fact, dealing with ego defenses, if this is a red brain phenomenon, um, then it requires... Um, it requires, on our part, soothing, on our part, um, helping people go through the steps of self-reg. It involves a certain amount of self-reflection, which is very difficult because self-reflection is precisely what shame is blocking. Um, and in the meantime, public health is going to do what public health has to do. Um, if public health has to impose uh, you know, mandatory constrictions, that's what public health is going to do. 
uh, because there are serious uh, issues at stake here. There is the viability of our health system. There is the welfare of our loved ones. Um, so um, um, what can we do? What can you and I do as self-regulators? And what I wanted to end with today was I'm not suggesting that our goal is to try to plant self-doubt, to try to get people to question. And then we're back to where we started thinking this is blue brain. Our goal is to help these people, is to help anyone experience the calmness which makes curiosity possible, curiosity about yourself. What we are looking for here is, uh, is the embodied self-awareness that makes restoration possible. So I actually, I'm actually, you know, this is the, the, the point I wanted to close on today. It's been a long talk today. It's a difficult issue. Um, I think we self-regulars have an enormous role to play here. And our role is not to convince. Our role is to help everyone that we can experience the, the benefits and the joy of restoring, properly restoring physiologically and emotionally. Okay, you know, it's a fairly difficult issue. Uh, I always get nervous when someone has an unshakable conviction. I wrote about this in Reframed in chapter four, I believe. Um, uh, and I think that what we need to do now as a society uh, is we need to have society, the whole of society, understand and, and engaging in the five steps of self-break. So... Uh, I want to close by saying that the podcast was been, this podcast was brought to you by Self-Reg Global as part of its mission to bring self-reg knowledge to audiences around the world. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, follow us on social media, and if you missed anything, you can check out the show notes at Self-Reg Global's website, uh, selfregglobal.com. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, join me again next time uh, as I go on to discuss uh, an issue that is very closely connected with what I've done today, uh, uh, something that's been at the forefront of everyone's mind uh, for the last several years, what happens to a society when we lose faith or trust in our leaders, um, what happens when uh, both virtue and shame start to die. So thank you everyone, and I look forward to our, our next talk together. Goodbye.